Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the PA Path Podcast. Before we get started, we'd like to extend a special thank you to our episode sponsor, the PA History Society. Today, we have a special guest who has an impressive history in her relatively young life, including her success as a mountain climber. Our guest is only the 69th woman in history to have successfully climbed the summit of the seven tallest continental peaks in the world, including her summit of Mount Everest in 2016, while attending PA school at the University of Southern California. Vanessa Blasick also managed to pay down over $300,000 in student loans since graduating in 2017, and we invited her on to share her secrets. Vanessa practices in urology with elite robotic surgical consultants throughout California. She also serves as a consultant for several prominent medical device companies, and she is a lecturer at the USC PA program. Vanessa, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to speak with you. Why don't we start with your story about how you became a PA? What led you to PA school in the first place? Yeah, so I went to undergrad. I was a biology major. I was on the path to medicine. I actually always wanted to be in medicine from a very young age, not from any kind of family members or anything. I was just very fascinated by the idea of surgery. Very young age, I kept saying, I want to be a surgeon. And I'm not sure what exactly instilled that into me. I was just somebody who really liked to work with my hands. And I just found that so fascinating. So I went to undergrad, University of San Diego, studied biology, had a little bit of struggle there. Didn't really know if med school was going to be for me. So when I got out, my brother is actually, at the time, he was an EMT. He's now a fire captain, but at the time he was an EMT, he said, go become an EMT. When you graduate, take a look at all your options and see what you want to do. So I became an EMT as soon as I graduated. I was working on the ambulance and then I started to do the 911 calls, ALS. I really enjoyed it. And that was actually the first time I met a PA because before that, I actually didn't know what a PA was. And we didn't talk about it in school. There was no PA society at that time. It was the first time and they were doing procedures. And I was just fascinated. I was like, you do procedures, you get paid well, you have a lot of independence, yet you also have people, a team that you can work with and is looking out for you. And that's when I started to explore it. So I actually applied to PA school for about four years after graduation. So I was a little bit later in the game, some might say these days. So I waited a little bit and then that's when I applied and went to PA school. And I am so glad I went to PA school and I'm very happy with my career decision. At one point, I did think I was going to go back to med school and didn't work out for me. All for the better, actually. Ended up having uh, even better job opportunities come my way and a lot more time freedom, a lot more actually a lot of financial freedom in what I do now too. So it's been phenomenal. So when you went to USC, you were thinking surgery. You had this also this emergency medicine background. So what kind of led you to your path to where you're at today clinically? Yeah, that's a great question. So I originally thought I was going to do trauma surgery when I was in school. That was one of my big driving forces. And then, like you said, I went and climbed Mount Everest. I did that during school. Actually, I did my ortho trauma rotation as soon as I got back. And I was really actually traumatized by doing Mount Everest and 
My father, he had frostbite. He lost four fingers, four toes. And just the whole experience with the deaths on the mountain and everything, and then doing a trauma rotation after that, I felt really traumatized by it. And I didn't know how I was going to proceed in such a high stress, high intensity situation. I said, I still love surgery. What can I do? And I always wanted to do a fellowship residency. I always thought, okay, I want to really craft my skill and what I do. It's one of the things that I think you'll get great leverage on and be a linchpin in any situation is how can I be like one of the best and do the best that I can? I thought, okay, a residency or fellowship. And so I looked at the options out there. There's like bariatric surgery, there's trauma surgery, there's cardiothoracic surgery, there's gen surge for like the residency fellowships. And I just so happened to find out that USC had urology fellowship. And I knew that because Dan Park was one of the speakers that came to USC. And that's how I found out about it. Before that, I didn't know much about urology and what they did in surgery. So he let me come in shadow for a couple of days. And then I think they do robotic surgery, which I also didn't know much about. And I absolutely love the robot and I loved all the procedures that they do and being very hands-on. And as a PA, you could do a lot of procedures. You could do a lot of OR first assist. And that's when I decided to apply for the fellowship, went through the fellowship and am very happy I'm in urology still to this day. So before we jump into the climbing history, which I know our listeners would be very excited to hear about, tell us about that aspect of robotic surgery. Because in my mind, if you have a surgeon working on the robot, there's only enough room for one person. But what is a PA's role in robotic surgery? And what other procedures have you done or at least initiated or, or closed to uh, support the urologist in the OR? So with the robotic surgery as a first assist, you actually play a really big role. So you have your own, they're called like a port site, a first assist site. You can have one or two I rarely would have three. Two is pretty typical where I'm working alongside the surgeon. So when you start doing the surgeries on repeat, you actually know their steps before they even start to do those steps, especially if you're working with the same people multiple times. So I need to be anticipating their moves and I need to know like you pass in certain sutures, you're going to pass in certain instruments, you're going to hold, you're going to retract, you're going to know when they need to swap out the robotic arms. So did a lot of urology. And then over the last two years, I actually decided on the side to take locum positions, meaning traveler PA, mm -hmm. in all robotic surgery. So I wanted to craft my skill as a first assist. And so I went and worked with Kaiser and did two different hospitals doing every type of robotic first assisting just so I could learn so robotic first assisting more than anything, and that translates back to being a urology first assist anyway. It always translates. So when you see a lot of other surgeons working and how they think and how they operate, it just makes you better and better. So there is a lot that you do actually as a first assist where you really move the case along and you really help them, help the surgeon out along the way. And I do a lot of open cases too. The robots more where I find joy. So I usually steer towards those. And then now I actually do all procedures. In my current job as well, what I've been doing for the last several years is I've pretty much moved away from the clinic. This was by my own doing and I do all procedures. 
So everything in urology from cystoscopies to prostate biopsies, I do sacral nerve modulation, and I do all other procedures. And we've been trying to integrate more and more. So I have lots of meetings coming up here soon trying to see. It's always like the surgeons want you to do it. It's is the hospital going to let me do it? Those kind of things. Like really moving the needle forward. So doing more things with BPH health and those kind of things. So it sounds like you have a couple challenges when you do this work that you're in. One, you have to be on the same page with a variety of different surgeons now and make sure you game plan it with them and they understand what your skills are and you understand what their preferences are and their timing is. But you also have to prove yourself time and time again to the health systems to get credentialed to do that work. Is, is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So it definitely varies on where I'm working and who I'm working with and what kind of circumstances. So the positions I've been putting myself in are very unique. I don't really hear a lot of these do this kind of work. In private practice, it was definitely a little bit easier when I had supervising physicians have my back. So I was very fortunate when I was in private practice where I had all my SPs or the docs I was working with, they were like, hey, Vanessa, you can do this. Therefore, we're going to make it happen. We're going to put it on your credentialing. And even if there's pushback from the hospitals, they'd be like, okay, well, big boss man says you can do it. I guess you can do it. And that would be like putting SP tubes in or dents in in the ER or doing these things that a lot of PAs don't do dilations in the ER, sisters bedside and stuff. And they'd be like, well, my SP had so much faith and confidence in me that he made sure that it was going to be able to happen. And when you go do the locum jobs, it's a little bit different. You had to have show up and be like, yeah, I know my stuff. But then you have to really prove to them that you know your stuff. Everyone's going to have a little bit of reservation when they first meet you because they're not maybe quite used to people showing up and knowing the ropes without them having to tell you what to do. I imagine given the number of credentialing applications you have to go through, you have quite a thorough dossier with all of your skills and all of your training certifications and to try to smooth that process over. Yeah, a lot of credentialing. Fortunately, in the position I'm in now and the other locum positions, I have people who do the credentialing for me. So they really help out and it's always showing case logs and such to show that you've done it. But I still need to get proctored pretty much every place I go. They still want cases to be proctored a certain amount, three or five. And you laugh about it a little bit and say, here's my 3,000 I've done, but I'll still get proctored. you got to play the game sometimes. So that's how it is for sure. physicians too. The physicians do the same thing. I've done this robotic surgery how many thousands of times and you want me to get proctored by someone else. But it's their rules and it's all fine. It's so much easier having someone working for you and getting the credentialing done. Sure. So when you left PA school, I presume you had a fair amount of student loan accumulated yeah. debt from both the University of San Diego and from USC. Tell us how you mentally approached that because you also did a residency. So that was a year of taking a little less salary than you normally would have received, presumably to be able to get that incredible training with a top urologic site like SC. So what was your mentality of that and how did you start? Yeah, so when I first got out, so fortunately, actually, my parents took care of my undergrad. And then grad school was on me, which I think is very fair and reasonable. And when I was going through it, I was not prepared. When I was in school, I didn't understand the financial implications of taking out so many student loans for everything. And it was one of those silly mindsets of, oh, I'll just put it on 
the, the loan will pay for it and I'll pay it back later when I'm making buco bucks. And oh, you forget that you're actually accruing interest the whole time. You don't have to be paying during school, but you're actually accruing interest. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about and I didn't realize. And I'm like, whoa, look at all that interest that accrued in three years. Uh, <laughs> I came out with over 330,000 and then they sit down at, at the last couple of weeks and they go, okay, here's your market value for what you'll make in each specialty as a PA. And that was a little bit of a shock. So before going to PA school, that number was really big. Because remember, I was an EMT working minimum wage. So that number was really big. But then when I came out of school and I'm going, oh, my debt to income ratio, this is going to be a long road ahead. How am I going to take care of this? I never had debt like that. I didn't own a home or anything. Looking at when people say to me, oh, you'll make 120 140 a year and I'm going, but my loans cost this much per month and they are government loans at 7% interest. Like they're like 6.98 or something. So yeah. call it seven. And I'm going, this is going to take forever. And, and then I want to buy a home and I want to like travel and I want to do all these things. How am I going to do it? And I had, I think it was like a major just freak out moment because like you said, I was in my fellowship. My fellowship was almost 45,000 a year is what I got paid. I got paid like a re regular resident and you don't have to pay the loans during, you still get a grace period, especially during the fellowship of a grace period, but it's still occurring interest. So what I did immediately is, okay, can't really negotiate on that end. Can't really negotiate with USC for the fellowship pay rate. That's just, it is what it is. So what else can I do? I just started to double down. So I got a job in urgent care. I worked every single weekend. Saturday and Sunday, I picked up, they let me do call at USC. So I did call two days a week at least, taking phone calls, maybe not having to go in, but at least taking phone calls. So it was like, what do I need to do to start paying down faster and faster? And a lot of people then talked about refinancing. But the problem was to refinance, they want you to have so much money in the bank. Every bank I was talking to wanted to have a certain percentage in the bank maybe 10% in the bank where they just hold on to it. Oh, 30 grand in the bank off a $300,000 loan. I didn't have just to give them to hold on to. So as I got paid out as much as possible to then be able to refinance maybe somewhere else and see what I can do. Had a financial advisor. I've had a couple because whenever somebody says, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. You're not going to be able to do that. What are you thinking? You only make 3000 a month or 4000 a month, you're not going to be able to pay it off in, in five years or six years or seven years. And I'm going to, I'll find a way. I'll find mm -hmm. a way. I don't know the way, but there there's going to be a way. And so as soon as I got out of the fellowship, got a job at the private practice, and I negotiated really hard. And I said, I, I asked well over market value, but the thing was, I had a lot of skill sets. I knew going into the fellowship, I worked really hard to give myself very specific niche targeted skill set that's going to be very hard to find. You're not going to find many PAs with the skill set. I'm totally independent practicing. Like You don't really need to be watching over me. You could have me do all these things that are going to profit you. And then from there on out, I negotiated over and over again within my jobs. About every three months is my point where I'll bring it up mm -hmm. everywhere I go actually still I, I bring it up every couple of months 
And I'm always asking now in my job, I'm a partner in my company. So it's easy for me. I actually set up everybody's profiting, what their numbers are every month. And back then it was good. My bosses were very kind to share those numbers back then. And then I just say, look at my profit, look at my skill set. And even if it's a couple dollars here and there, an hour, I would go Mm -hmm. for it. I paid it down as fast as possible. Let's take a quick minute for a word from our episode sponsor, the PA History Society. The PA History Society is an excellent educational resource for PA faculty, PA students, and researchers. For those who teach the Professional Issues course in the history of the profession, the Society's publication, PAs as Social Innovators in Healthcare, includes content that may help address several ARCPA curricular components. JPAE reviewer Chris Roman states, quote, this book is well-organized, guiding the reader through the various steps in the creation and expansion of the field, unquote. For more information on how to order PAs as social innovators in healthcare and other educational resources from the PA History Society, visit pahx.org. So you were using data from your practice output to negotiate yeah. higher salaries. And presumably you, as part of your negotiations, you wanted to have access to that data so that you could continue to bring them more value and also then receive a higher salary for that. Yeah, I think it's a very like positive feedback loop because I love that personally, I feel like when I get a raise, everybody does better. I've noticed every time that I get a raise, I continue to profit companies more and more. And I just keep the numbers and I'm like, I don't know if it's because something inside of me says, okay, now what else can we do? I'm constantly trying to find more value, become more efficient, become better at my job in every way. So every time I even think about that before going into it, I'm looking at those numbers and I want to see an increase in my profit or what I'm offering them. Am I offering them some time freedom? That's another thing. Am I offering my physicians more time where they don't have to go in to the ER and take care of that? You know, they get to have dinner with their wife that night or do they get to- And what is the cost of that value for them? Yeah. So there's multiple ways I look at it. So the negotiation for more money. And then finally, I did refinance. Once I got it down to 170 grand of loans, I refinanced with a a credit union, actually. And they gave me a really good deal at 1.9%. That was really good for several years. About three and a half years, it stayed exactly 1.9%. So I was just writing it out because how do you get a loan at 1.9%? So just write it out and put money into other investments along the way. And then these last several months, it's been going up again. And so I'm probably just going to pay it off. I owe less than 30 grand now out of 330. And I'm at year seven. Congratulations. Thank you. And from your perspective, what were the sacrifices you made in the last, we're talking about six years now since you graduated. What are those sacrifices you had to make to prioritize paying that down? Yeah, I definitely in the first, it was almost three years total that I worked seven days a week, pretty consistently seven days a week and doing calls. So I was working very hard and putting all the money I could towards the loans. So that was a big sacrifice because when you come out of school and you're getting an actual paycheck, maybe before you didn't have quite a, a career that was paying you so well. So you want to go do stuff. You want to spend the money. You want to go buy things. You want to maybe upgrade your life, which is very natural. And so for me, I actually did multiple sacrifices. I said, I'm going to 
do the ultimate move back home for a couple of years. Like my parents are so supportive. Not many 28 year olds or 29 year olds want to move back home, but I was like, I got to When you're paying rent these days, that I got to just do what I can. So it meant a lot of sacrifice in terms of travel, in terms of going back to mom and dad's house, to working, to being really tired. But that set me up so well. My life is very different now in terms of time freedom now, and financial now freedom. Now and forever, because now you don't yeah. have that albatross hanging around your neck. Yeah, yeah, just all that energy I put into myself and my career, I have really become like a linchpin, especially in the company I am now. And I was really able to position myself as a partner and to make a really great money. And so I work on average 10 to 12 days a month. I make 4x what 5x what most PAs make now. And I can travel the world and I am buying up property. So very different these days but it was just that mentality of you gotta really work hard in the beginning and i still work hard it's just not quite the seven days a week yeah yeah now you have a life well well, let's shift gears and talk about your incredible history on the other side which is the climbing history when you came to usc i remember us talking about your dream it actually was in the first year in your didactic year that you mentioned the desire to climb mount everest which was the seventh and final peak for you to summit. As I understand the seven summits, these are the, the tallest mountains on each continent. Is that correct? Correct. And based at least on the seven summits.com, there are 416 people who have done it. Only two women have done it since you. You're the 69th woman to do it and the 412th person in history. Yeah. But there's only been, unless the date has not been updated, there's only been a few other since. So maybe how did you get into climbing? Where did you start? And then walk us through the different summits and and that preparation that you needed to get to the big one with Mount Everest. Yeah, so I actually started, I was pretty young, uh, climbing, about 13. And I started because my brothers were in the Boy Scouts. My dad was a chair of the Boy Scouts in San Diego in La Jolla. And I was in the Girl Scouts at that time, but I wasn't so involved just because they weren't doing activities that really lit me up. So it was more of the home kind of activities. And Mm -hmm. I do love Girl Scout cookies. Don't get me wrong there. I will eat a box of Girl Scout cookies any day. But my brothers were doing phenomenal trips. They're going to Hawaii. They're going to Grand Canyon. They're going to New Mexico. They're going to Joshua Tree. They're doing all these things. I was like, Dad, I want to go. You can't really go. You're a girl. Girls aren't supposed to go to Boy Scout trips. And he made a little bit of exception one year. They decided they were going to backpack through the Sierras and finish off with Mount Whitney, which is the highest mountain in California. So it's going to be a two-week-long trip. He said, okay, you'll go. Okay, and we'll just keep it on the down low. And I was 13 at the time. It was actually my dad and I and a couple of other members. My brothers didn't go. My brother actually ruptured his eardrum the night before. So it was just us. And it was my first time really like, doing anything like that and we loved it and when we were on the trail we actually met a father and daughter she was a little bit older she's about 18 and they were just telling us all about Kilimanjaro and how we should look into it and they haven't done it but they thought it'd be the coolest thing ever as a duo or a family to go to Kilimanjaro and naive that sounds great and I was really we were really into sports back then we're into all this stuff but we didn't really do anything as a family unit Mm -hmm. my dad said okay let's look into this 
And he did. And at 15, that's when we went and I climbed Kilimanjaro. Amazing. In Africa. Okay. Yeah. So we went and did that. And it was my dad, my brother, my older brother, and I. I have one other brother. He actually just went on safaris while we were climbing. And we were with a group. And in the group, it so happened, they're like, so who's going where next? We didn't know. It was like a thing. Go mm-hmm. climb places. And what's like your next bucket list place to go climb? And we were like, what are you guys talking about? I don't know where to go next. And they're like, you should go try Elbrus in Russia. Not that hard. Not that much different in terms of intensity wise. And we're like, okay, sure. And we just went with the flow. We didn't really know what we were getting into. So we started just doing one, almost one a year to every two years. And after third, we're like, should we do all seven? And after the fourth, I was like, we're definitely doing all seven. Like, we got to just do this. This has been a great family bonding activity. And a couple of them we had to do twice just because of weather. We had to do Aconcagua in South America twice because we got weathered out. And then we had to do Denali in Alaska twice. Um, My dad had some altitude sickness the first time, so I went back down with him before summit day so all in all it took i was 27 when i finished everest so 14 years total to do all of them yeah and i was very happy that you granted me that ability to go during pa school and it was great timing it was great timing the year before there was a lot of tragedy on the mountain so it was great that i always say you saved my life because if i was there who knows what (laughs) would have happened to us so we got to go that year we did, and it was very intense at that time. We did lots of training, of course. I was working out, and I had coaches, and I was training pretty much six days a week and climbing throughout the weekends and such. But As I recall, Everest, is there, are there four base stations as you climb up before you hit the summit? Yeah, base camp, and then camp one, camp two, camp three, then camp four, which is you can also call it high camp. Okay. So I think it may have been the same year of the year after you, Don Peterson, who was on our podcast just in August, Don went and climbed up to, I want to say, Camp 2 to honor a PA who had lost her life on Everest. And he had just had his hip replaced the year before in his 60s. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. But there's a definite difference between Camp 2, Camp 4, and the peak, right? Well, he did the really hard part, the Pumbu Icefall. That's, I think, probably the hardest part, the scariest uh, part ever. So you got to do that multiple times, too. Big congrats to him for doing that. I know what he's talking about, too, with the loss there. Yeah, the whole thing just mentally very challenging. And I was thinking about this the other day when you asked me to come and talk about a little bit about Everest and the finances and school and everything. And it brought me back to a memory because the other day, one of my coaches said to me, I just get regular coaching just for like wellness and well-being and just always trying to stay on top of my game and and the coach Mm -hmm. said it's gonna be difficult anything you really want might be difficult but that doesn't mean you're not gonna make it because if you just keep going it's like running up a hill as long as you keep going up that hill you'll make it to the top eventually yeah i thought that is so interesting because the other day when i was thinking about everest it was pretty much that whole time when things were getting difficult it was this mentality of just very small consistency. And I remember I used to say to myself, just one, two, because I could not fathom 
going all the way up to the top of the hill. How far it was, how hard it was, how long it was going to take me. Mentally, I could not wrap my head around it the whole time. Every time I took a step, left foot would be one, right foot would be two. And I'd be like, you just got to do two steps. That's it. Just two steps. Mm -hmm. That's it. One step, two step. And then I'd repeat. And I'd just be like, okay, you just got to do two steps. One step, two steps. There's just very small, consistent actions. And that was a lot of what I've done throughout everything. Paying off the student loans, advancing my career, everything. It's just, you can't really fathom at top of the hill right now. You right. can't fathom paying off that amount of money. You can't fathom maybe buying a house. Right now, they're at 7% plus interest rates. You can't fathom these things. But it's okay, just that one step, what can I do right now? And do that every day consistently yeah control what you can control yeah was it for you i know your dad went with you and, and you shared briefly at the beginning of this that he had some uh, rough outcomes do you think it's easier to go with somebody is it like you, you both kept each other motivated to keep moving one step at a time or is it maybe more challenging because you recognize the danger and sometimes you might have to quit early that's a great question and i think it's a little bit of both because there were times that we've had to quit early. Like I said, on Denali, when he was having a lot of altitude sickness, and when you're on that mountain, you're roped in. So you're on a rope team. So because of the glaciers, you actually are roped up and you have to have a minimum amount of people on a team. Usually two is not really recommended with my climbing group. They wanted three. So when we've got a tricky situation going up to high camp and he's, I really don't feel good and we're about to go on a ridge line, that's very dangerous. That about a thousand foot drop and he's saying, I'm not feeling great. They're saying, well, if you're not feeling great, we're going to have to turn you around. Somebody has to go down with you because we have to have so many people on a rope team. Sure. And then you say, well, they look at you going, you're the daughter. You're going with them. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I want to climb, but okay, I get it too. And yeah, I want to support dad and make sure he doesn't feel bad about it because I've been there. I've been had altitude sickness like crazy and thought, I don't know what I'm going to do gets the best of us so that and that's really tough and it's definitely good and bad it's like the ultimate test to relationships because you're in one of the most high stress environments ever yeah so it's like how are you going to act towards each other in those high stress environments you can't lose your cool you can't lose your cool you can't be getting into any fights you have to be supportive you have to be as like encouraging as possible because it's a huge mental game on every mountain we've been on it's all mentality. So you got to be really encouraging. My brother was the best. And it was, I was really sad. He didn't do Everest. He did the six summits with us, but not Everest. He got married right before the mountain. And I understand why he didn't want to do Everest. Sure. But he was one of those guys that just super supportive. Like you got this V, you got the C, you got this V. And I'm one of those people that need that. I need that encouragement. Because if my mentation's not there, it's who else is going to help me get there. And so... Like on Everest, if you remember, before going to the summit, I had to put writings on my gloves. I had to write on my gloves in Sharpie, saying stuff yeah. like, keep going, you got this, keep going. I have to look at it. Because I'm like, no one else is telling me. If no one else is telling me this, or if dad's 50 feet behind me not telling me this, I got to tell myself this over and over again. You got this, keep going. You had a lot of PAs back in the States watching you through the website and cheering you on the whole way as well. So lots of positive energy flowing up towards Everest for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, Vanessa, before we go, we always like to offer our guests a chance to offer any last insights that they have or if it was something we didn't cover that you'd like to cover. I certainly want to give you that opportunity and 
thank you again for sharing your insights on, uh, especially the debt thing. I think so many students struggle with that. It's a great investment long-term, but you got to get that thing down quickly. So any parting thoughts before we go? Yeah, I think one of the main things I wanted to bring up, because I was just listening to a really great podcast, and this is my first time hearing about this person, but I would check him out, Naval Ravikant, and he does a YouTube where he put all his little podcasts together, and he does a really great job talking about, like, you are the only one who's going to really value your worth. And I believe that truly in myself, and I think if people can look at themselves and say, what do I believe I'm worth and what do I value myself as and what do I believe? Because I didn't accept, you know, the median pay for a PA to be acceptable for myself and what I valued. And I think that's propelled me the fastest is I've really believed in myself more than anybody has. And I've said, this is what I'm going to get. And that's what I get. And knowing that other people make more than that, can be very encouraging. So anybody who's listening and they feel like, well, how am I going to do it? This is all they say I'm going to get paid. There's so many opportunities out there in so many different ways, especially as a PA. But just believe in yourself. You're going to value yourself the most and just be of service to others and you'll do fine. That's awesome. That's great parting wisdom. And we'll be sure to include that link to YouTube on our website along with information about you as well. Vanessa, uh, we want to thank you for your time and for sharing your insights related to the cost of PA education. Your impressive history as a climber and adventurer, coupled with your dedication to clinical practice in our profession, provide a great example of what PAs can do to impact the world and also our own financial portfolios, which is really important. We would also like to extend a special thanks again to our episode sponsor, the PA History Society. Tune in next time as we continue the conversations with our PA colleagues and leaders around the world.